Good morning, church. Good morning. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles back to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. We'll pick up our journey through the narrative of Nehemiah there. In his great work, uh, Revival and Revivalism, a man named Ian Murray traces out the history of American evangelicalism in an effort to help American Christians think about why the American church is the way that it is. As a part of this work, Murray makes a distinction for us between what he calls revival versus revivalism. I won't go into all the details here, but but his thoughts are really helpful. And in, in particular, his definition of true revival is really helpful. Murray defines true revival as follows. A revival is an event of God's extraordinary blessing coming through the ordinary use of the ordinary means of grace. And he uses that term, the ordinary means of grace, the way that it's historically been understood. The right preaching of God's word and the right observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He makes the case that true revival is primarily observed where the word of God is preached in a way that makes clear the holiness of God, the depravity of man, and the necessity of salvation by faith in Christ. And I bring this up today not just for a good book recommendation, although that's true, but because by that evaluation, what we observe in the text of Nehemiah 8 this morning can very well be understood as the first revival among God's people. We find in our passage, that a widespread appreciation for the primacy of the word of God leads to large-scale repentance and obedience among the people of Israel. In fact, the, the main idea of this passage can be understood this way. The word of God works among the people of God to bring them strength for joyful obedience. Let me say that again. The word of God works among the people of God to bring them strength for joyful obedience. And we see this through the the three major movements of the chapter. We find first the reading of the word. And then second, we find Israel rejoicing in light of the word. And third, we find them repenting in light of the word. And these three movements of the text will serve as the sermon points this morning as well. But before we dive into the text, let me ask you to pray with me and ask God's blessing once again on this time as we come to his word. Father, we ask you now that you would do what you have said you would do, Lord, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth, God, and so we come now to it seeking not to simply grow in knowledge, not to simply check a box this morning. God, we we come to your word now asking that you would sanctify us, that you would make us more like your son. And Lord, as we work through this passage, I do pray that our understanding of you and your word and what your word teaches us about your character, God, I pray that that would lead us to live lives of joyful obedience. Joyful obedience, God, that's, that's clear and distinct 
that even is a witness to the watching world, God. That you would give us joy in you that sustains our souls. And we ask that you would do all this this morning for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, the first section in the text focuses on the reading of the word. Our text picks up the narrative of Nehemiah less than a week after the completion of the wall of Jerusalem. And the text doesn't tell us specifically why, but on the first day of the seventh month, the text does say that all Israel gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. The idea of being gathered here as one man is meant to communicate that they were of one mind. They, they were gathered for a unified purpose. And the rest of verse 1 tells us what that purpose was. It says, And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So God had worked among his people to give them a hunger to know his word. Remember, at at this time, people did not have copies of scripture in their homes to read. They were dependent on the scribes and the priests to give them instruction from the scriptures. Now, perhaps this desire was brought about in response to seeing God work a miracle of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem so swiftly and successfully. Remember that in chapter 6, Nehemiah tells us that upon completion of the wall, even all the nations around us perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Whatever the cause, God had worked in them a desire to more fully know Him, and thus He gave them an appetite to know His Word. And friends, there's much to glean from this passage. But one thing that demands our notice right off the bat is the affirmation of the divine authorship of the Scriptures. When they call for Ezra to bring the book, look at the way they refer to it in verse 1. They say, bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. They were aware that these commandments were were given to Moses, but they were not originating with Moses. They originated with and came from the mouth of God, not the mind of Moses. So when they desire to know God, they do not say, "Hey, Hey, Ezra, won't you come talk to us for a little bit about God? Ezra, why don't you come share with us your experience of Him? No. What did they say? Ezra, bring the book. Nothing else was to be accepted. Ezra's words weren't inspired. Ezra's words weren't inerrant or infallible. Ezra's words were not sufficient to know God and walk with Him. It's as though they said, hey, Ezra, look, don't worry about a crafty introduction, okay, man? Don't don't worry about funny stories. Just bring the book. Tell us, Ezra, what God has said. So, according to verse 2, we read, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women, and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. For half the day, the people of Israel sat under the ministry of God's word, hearing it and 
as we'll see in a moment, receiving an exposition of it. And what follows from verses 4 to 8, we find a description, really, of what this event actually looked like. In verse 4, we read that Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose. And here it's clear that Ezra was not the one being lifted up so that all the people would be attentive to him. No, the, the word of God is what they demanded, and the word of God, therefore, is what was exalted. And with a number of colleagues there at his side, in verse 5, we read that Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. The people of Israel were determined to hear from God. They were determined to hear from God through his word. And so they received his word actively and reverently. Church, this is an example to us of a right approach to God's word. It was, and it still is, a customary practice among Jews to stand for the reading of God's word. It's an act that shows honor and reverence for the scriptures, which is the only posture of heart that's really fitting to receive the word of God. Because we understand that in receiving his revelation, the infinite, incomprehensible God of the universe is graciously condescending to us to use finite words and grammatical structure to make himself known to his people. The one of whom Isaiah says his understanding is unsearchable actually works to make his thoughts discernible to us. The opening of God's word is nothing short of a miracle, friends. So they stand in reverence. Not to mention when you're receiving the ministry of the word of God for half the day, it's a lot harder to fall asleep standing up. So there's that. (laughs) Continuing on in verse 6. We read, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You've heard me say it before, church, and we find this truth here again. Wherever God is elevated, man is brought low. Every time. Now initially, we're told that Ezra reads the law. And best we can tell, it seems that he's leading the, the, this whole event here. But a number of other men that are listed here help in the reading and the teaching of the law. Verse 8 says of these men, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense or the meaning so that the people understood the reading. From this verse, we glean a couple of important things that should shape the church's practice today. First of all, we see that Ezra was not seen as having the sole responsibility of teaching the people of God. Over against the modern idea that often pervades in churches, it has always been the design of God to give His people a plurality of men who are gifted to teach His people from His Word. There is not to be among the people of God one man who's identified as God's anointed and and serves as a sort of fountain of wisdom. No, the the fountain here we see is the Word of God. And from ages past, it's been God's design to equip men with the ability to, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, rightly handle the Word of truth. Which is actually the second thing that we glean from verse 8. 
when Paul gives the command to preachers in 2 Timothy 2 to rightly handle the word of truth, Paul there is is alluding to a, a skilled workman who would make straight cuts. That's why sometimes you'll hear people say of good preaching, that man cuts it straight. Like Paul in his own trade of tent making, he, he would follow a, a pattern that would, he, he would have to use to make straight cuts before sewing together pieces of material to make a quality tent. And so the idea is that a plurality of men among God's people should be able to handle the word. Not according to their own ideas, but according to the pattern set down by the word. As such, they are to place the emphasis in the right places and bring together the various elements and points in such a way that what's communicated is what the biblical author intends to be understood from the text. And and this practice is clear from verse 8 as we read that these men read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Notice, these preachers never gave their sense. They gave the sense. And for what purpose did they labor? Well, according to verse 8 right there in the text, read it with me. It was so that the people understood the reading. They didn't labor so that their ideas might be understood and perhaps supported by the Word of God. They labored to make God's word clear and understandable to God's people. Friends, we find here why expositional preaching is so very vital to the church. And different people think about different things when they hear the term expositional preaching. But let me give you a simple definition that should really form our standard of expositional preaching. Expositional preaching takes the main point of a passage of Scripture makes it the main point of the sermon, and applies it to life today. It's really that simple. In other words, if you come away from the preaching of the Word of God, but you don't actually understand what the passage means, then that time was spent in vain. When the people of Israel desired to know God better, they called for His Word to be read, and they called for it to be taught so that they understood the mind of God in it. And that's the pattern that we're to follow to this day. Now, there's much more to be said about the primacy of the Word of God and the necessity of expositional preaching that I would be glad to go on about for quite some time. But in keeping with the call to make the main point of the passage, the main point of the sermon, you'll remember that I said at the outset that the main idea of this passage is that the Word of God works among the people of God to bring them strength for joyful obedience. So in the next section of the text, we should find that the people of God respond to the reading and teaching of the Word of God with joy, right? That's not so straightforward. As the passage continues in verse 9, we read, And Nehemiah was the governor, or or excuse me, uh, Nehemiah who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So the response to the reading and teaching of the book of the law was the opposite of joy. 
So much so that verse 11 tells us that the Levites had to calm the people, saying, be quiet, do not be grieved. So the natural question then is, why? Why was their response to God's law to grieve rather than rejoice? And the answer to that is simply because they understood what they heard. When the nation of Israel was led out of captivity in Egypt and God gave them his law through Moses, the the purpose of it was clear. God gave the law to graciously reveal himself and his holy nature to his people. But the other side of that is that it also revealed the unholiness of all mankind. God's people not excused when mankind looks at the law of God and he understands what he reads there, we're met with the reality that we don't measure up to the commands that God has given. And worse than that, when when we're honest with ourselves, men and women face the reality that we don't even possess the ability to obey God's law perfectly. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law, he says, only comes knowledge of sin. And his law is clear. That for those who disobey, even in the slightest, they are cut off from God and his people. They are cut off from life in God. Disobedience to an infinite, eternal being merits infinite, eternal punishment under his wrath. And so, the people mourned and they wept as they understood the ramifications of their unholiness in relation to God's holiness. But then the natural question comes, well, if the law exposed their sin and a right response to sin is to grieve and weep, then, then why were they instructed then to rejoice? Well, the answer to that is undoubtedly found in further instruction in God's law. As the Levites, the text tells us, calmed all the people, it's likely that took the form of the Levites explaining to the people of God that he had appointed festivals to be observed. And and that these festivals in his providence actually coincided with the time of the year that this very revival was occurring. Verse 2 tells us that Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly on the first day of the seventh month. On the Jewish calendar, there was three celebrations that were to take place in the seventh month. These are outlined for us in Leviticus 23. It was there that God commanded that the first day of the seventh month was to be celebrated as the Feast of Trumpets. And as the name signifies, the Feast of Trumpets was a day when Israel would rest. They were to make uh, offerings to God. They were to to, to feast, and then according to Leviticus 23, there was a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets. But you might ask, to what end? Why are they blasting these trumpets? Well, it was to signal to the people of Israel that in just nine days, they would celebrate the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was, of course, the highest and holiest days of the Jewish calendar. It was the one day of the year when God granted access to the Holy of Holies, where his presence dwelt, but only to the high priest. 
And it was his solemn duty, in accordance with the law, to act as a mediator between God and man. So as God prescribed, he, he would take the blood of a bull and a goat and offer it before the Lord for the sins of himself and the people for the forgiveness of their sins. For God says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then the high priest would take another goat and laying his hands on its head, he would pronounce the sins of the people on it and then he would release it into the wilderness, carrying away the guilt of all the people with it. It was a most glorious day. It was a day that was waited for with much anticipation because it was on this day that God made provision for His people to be forgiven of their sins and freed from the guilt brought about by their sin. Under the old covenant law, this was the closest earthly fellowship that one could have to God. And the first day of the seventh month, when this revival is taking place, was the day when Israel was to begin to prepare for this high and holy day. The first day of the seventh month, the people were to begin setting their minds on the gracious and merciful provision that God had made for their sins through this atoning sacrifice. And therefore, they were to rejoice this day, not mourn. And there's a reality exposed in this text that, that works to motivate the Israelites, even when faced with their sin, it, it works to motivate them toward joy instead of sorrow. And, and this is extremely important for the people of God to take hold of. I believe that this reality serves as the anchor for the Christian life. If you're despairing over guilt because of sin, if you're prone to depression, the sufferings of life are just too great for you to bear, whatever the level or the category of grief that you experience, this reality is the thing that allows you to experience the joy of faithful obedience to God in this world. And it comes to us in verse 10. Look there with me. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing already. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for, are you ready for it? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, a lot of people quote the last part of that verse there. You know, when um, Christians who've done a lot of Bible memorization come across somebody and they're sad, they're you know, sort of down... They sort of throw that out. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And they hope it helps. You know? But the fact of the matter is that this doesn't really make sense when it's divorced from the context of this passage. I mean, it barely makes sense within the context of this passage. The, the counsel given to those grieved by sin is, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So according to the text, if you're going to find strength to face the day under the cloud of your sin... If you're going to find strength to pursue fellowship with God when the very thought of it seems overwhelming, according to this text, that strength to live faithfully and joyfully is drawn from the joy of the Lord. And notice carefully, it does not say that our strength comes from our joy in the Lord. 
Friends, our joy is subjective. It waxes and wanes from one day to the next. No, the text says that our strength is derived from the joy of the Lord. In other words, our strength is rooted in that which brings delight to God Himself. And God never changes. So what brings Him delight never changes. And that's why I say that this reality is the anchor of Christian joy and faithfulness. So that begs then the question, what is the joy of the Lord? What what does God delight in? Well, what we gather from the context of the passage, with the admonition for them to rejoice over the day that's coming, we gather that it brings God great delight to provide atonement for the sins of His people through a substitutionary sacrifice. This first day of the seventh month, this feast of trumpets was set aside to call God's people to remember and rejoice in the reality that they were just days away from experiencing the day of atonement. And again, church, we understand that God's law, which is where they were commanded to observe this feast of trumpets, God's law reveals the character and nature of God Himself. So when He commands His people to rejoice at the coming Day of Atonement, He's communicating His own delight to provide redemption for His people through a substitutionary sacrifice. And as the character of God doesn't change, this principle carries right over for application to the life of the New Testament believer. Church, we've come to know what the Day of Atonement, high and holy as it was, only anticipated. We have come to know what the author of Hebrews says plainly, that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And trusting in that truth, we have all the more reason to find strength, the, the, the strength necessary for living a life of Joy and faithfulness to the Lord. Listen, there is much talk today about you know, the need for introspection and self-reflection and finding answers within yourself and you know, self-forgiveness and the process of forgiving oneself and things like that. But I'm here to tell you that based on the authority of the Word of God, that counsel is garbage. Friend, you don't possess the power or authority to forgive yourself for anything. And and, and that does nothing to bring you to a place of joy in God and obedience to God. But you know what does? Oh, friend, there is glorious freedom in the recognition that God does not begrudgingly or reluctantly forgive His people in Christ. God takes joy, divine, infinite, sovereign, eternal, perfect joy 
in crediting our sins to the perfect spotless Lamb who is Christ and crediting Christ's righteousness to us. I could dwell here for much longer, but but the bottom line is this. Our hope and strength for living a life of joy-filled, faithful obedience to God is rooted in His great and glorious joy of offering full and final forgiveness to His people in Christ. It's only in embracing that reality that we find an enduring motivation to obey His command. It's the only durable thing we can take hold of. And that reality is what we find in the final movement of the passage. In the third section of the text, we find the people joyfully repenting. And so the last point is repenting in light of the word. And then you might say, joyfully repenting is an odd expression, Trey. Repenting has a negative connotation to it. And it's not really something that Most people take a lot of joy in. And you'd be right. The Lord even prescribes a a certain sorrowful attitude of heart, among other things, when He calls His people to confess and repent of their sin. Excuse me. However, at base, to repent is simply to turn from sin to obedience. And that's just what we find in the remaining verses. Verse 13 says, On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. So they they wanted more Bible. They wanted to know God more. Therefore, they wanted more Bible. And verse 14 tells us that when they continued their study, they found that not only was the Feast of Trumpets to be celebrated this month, Not only was the Day of Atonement to be celebrated, but there was another celebration that they had neglected at some level and for some time. The third celebration in the seventh month was the Feast of Booths. You may have heard it referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was to be celebrated as a reminder of God's provision for Israel during the 40 years of wilderness wandering. The Israelites were to make tents and they were to live in them for a week as they reflected on God's faithful provision for them. And so they did. Look there at verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. So whereas at the reading of the law the day before, they were brought to tears and really sort of paralyzed in their ability to do anything but mourn over their sin. But now, something different was happening. Now, the law was read, and they recognized that they were in sin. They hadn't been observing what God had commanded, at least not not properly. But instead of being paralyzed by their sin... They were motivated to obey. So what changed? After having been instructed in God's Word and understanding that God had made a way for His people to be forgiven of sin and free from their guilt, they were enabled to live lives of joyful obedience rather than fearful condemnation. You see, their nature hadn't changed. They were still sinners who failed to keep 
God's law perfectly. But now, motivated by the loving provision of God's forgiveness, they could live lives with the confidence of God's delight to both save and sustain those who belong to Him. And thus, the joy of the Lord became their strength for joyful obedience. This is made clear from the text. Notice with me what characterized their obedience. Look at the end of verse 17. And there was very great rejoicing. They discovered the truth, church. That that, that is just as applicable to us as New Testament believers as it was to them that lived under the old covenant. A truth that's essential for joyful Christian faithfulness. The Word of God taught them that obedience to God is rooted in and motivated by what God has done to save us, not our futile efforts to appease Him. My prayer today is that that we would each, individually and corporately, that we we would embrace the reality revealed to us in the Word, that, that God, with great joy has definitively accomplished our salvation through the substitutionary sacrifice of His Son. And my prayer is that we would do so in a way that it's not just another theological fact that's cataloged in our brains, but that we do so in a way that allows us to find the strength necessary for joyful obedience to it. It's... Magnificent, really. God delights in the perfect work of His Son. And He delights to apply it to those trusting in His Son. That is the kind of strong, sturdy, transcendent truth that can give weary saints strength. Amen? Amen? Let's hold on to that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for what You've revealed to us in it. That Christ has made atonement for sin and that You delight in Christ's work of redemption. You delight to apply it to us, Lord. Even more, perhaps, than we delight to embrace it. Oh, so God, please help us to embrace it. Help us to... Meditate today on the reality that You delight to save sinners. And in that, Lord, I pray that we would be strengthened to joyful obedience each and every day. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.